On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC. Redesign your organisation. Reinvent your capabilities. Reimagine your future. On News Talk. Today being September 24th, by the way, means that yesterday was September the 23rd, which means that Sheena Cahill, who often uh, sits in to re- review our newspapers around now, is now a married woman. She, from Carrick Edmund, uh, got married to Sarah Elaine McHugh of Edwardstown, uh, a little Longford duopoly there. They went all the way down to Clonakilty to get hitched yesterday. Uh, I'd be amazed if they've even gone to bed yet. Uh, but if they, if they aren't uh, still asleep right now, and if on the off chance they are tuning in, uh, wish you both uh, a wonderful and happy marriage and hope that you had a cracking day yesterday. Um, it's also worth noting today, it being the 24th of September, that for the first time in genuinely what feels about four months, there isn't a single RTE story on the front pages of the newspapers today. Uh, we finally managed to, to break the stranglehold, although that might be because the budget is on the way. And of course, there was a lot of other events at Leinster House too uh, to dominate the news. Uh, we'll start with the mail on Sunday. 14 billion euro hole in the National Raid and Roll, Rail and Road Plan, uh, reports John Lee. Flagship infrastructure projects, including the long-delayed Dublin Metro, DART and National Road Rail and Cycle projects, are all under threat due to a 14 billion euro inflation-driven deficit in the National Development Plan. The stark warning is contained in a confidential cabinet document seen by the Mail on Sunday. The secret memo puts the coalition on notice that there will have to be a deprioritization of certain projects in the NDP 2021-30 owing to an indicative funding deficit of 14.2 billion euro. The confidential memo from the Department of Transport is being brought to cabinet this coming Tuesday uh, by the Minister for Transport, Eamon Ryan, which means that this is probably news to a lot of cabinet ministers this morning. I'm sure an unwelcome one. It says that as with all capital projects across government, high levels of inflation have reduced the level of output that can be delivered for a fixed level of investment. It is only uh, about two years since that National Development Plan was launched, but clearly two years in and already some doubts about how deliverable it is, Um, which might not be helped by the story on the front page of the Business Post, which is about the EU trying to get more money out of Ireland to contribute to a growing budget deficit that it has. Uh, The Business Post has spoken to the Finance Minister, uh, Michael McGrath, Uh, which says that Ireland has voiced significant concern at fresh attempts by the EU to disproportionately raid our corporate profit revenues. Uh, New proposals which have been tabled at EU level are seeking to use corporate profits as a basis to increase Ireland's contributions to the EU budget by up to €1.5 billion a year. Uh, And these proposals have sparked alarm. Uh, They've been strongly resisted by Dublin due to the outsized impact that it would have here because of our large corporate profit base, which is driven by multinationals. Uh, Michael McGrath has told the Business Post this weekend the ideas are very concerning. And the Business Post has learned that the Department of Finance is carrying out an impact assessment to establish the potential fallout. Michael McGrath says, We do have significant concerns about the proposal for an own resource based on company profits. Uh, McGrath said that normal processes around raising revenues for the EU should be followed. I've already laid out these concerns at the July meeting of EU finance ministers, he says. Uh, the front page of the Sunday Independent. Uh, I should say, by the way, before I go any further, uh, the front page uh, pages of all the newspapers understandably have pictures of some some very tired but some very happy looking members of the Irish rugby team after that big win over the Springboks last night. They are everywhere as as well they should be. Um, alongside a photograph of James Lowe and Andrew Porter on the front page of the Sunday Independent is the news that the surgeon uh, who is at the centre of the controversy around uh, spinal surgeries at Temple Street Children's Hospital uh, sourced the unlicensed springs that were inserted into some of his patients for €51 a box. Uh, The headline on the piece by Maeve Sheehan says, an orthopaedic surgeon who is adapting a pioneering technique to treat very young children with severe spinal issues sourced non-medical devices online because medically approved alternatives were not available. 
Sources said that Connor Green, who's the paediatric orthopaedic specialist at the centre of the crisis, ordered ordinary compression springs. Uh, the 10 devices were paid for by Temple Street in January 2020 at a cost of €51 Euro for the box and were delivered to the orthopaedic department in February. Uh, Green is a high-profile orthopaedic surgeon who led the treatment of children with spina bifida at Temple Street. He is understood to have discussed the innovative technique with other clinicians and medical experts. Uh, the piece goes on to explain inside the pages, or inside the paper rather, that some of the thinking was that if you use traditional methods to insert something of a rod inside the back of people who are developing with spina bifida, that although it helps them to straighten as they grow over time, that it does result in the need for there to be follow-on surgeries because of the placement or the condition of the rod. The thinking was that by introducing a spring to that process, you might reduce the need for there to be follow-up procedures. Although obviously in this instance, that now hasn't always turned out to be the case. Um, By the way, in the Sindo also reported, that the coalition's budget plans for next month are being seriously overthreatened by the, quote, worst ever overspend in the Department of Health, which has set off alarm bells in senior government circles in recent days. The health service budget overrun stands at 700 million euro for the first seven months of the year. A bailout topping 1 billion euro is now likely. And of course, if you give the HSE 1 billion euro this year, it means that you also have to increase their core spending by 1 billion euro next year, which means far less money doing the rounds for any uh, cost of living uh, measures. Uh, and finally, now the Sunday Times Uh, which leads with the fallout from those demonstrations at Leinster House uh, last Wednesday. The Justice Minister, Helen McEntee, last night expressed her support uh, for what the paper is calling the Garda Commissioner's hands-off approach to policing far-right protests. That's despite calls for a crackdown on extremists following the violent protests that blockaded the Dáil last Wednesday. Helen McEntee's intervention comes as the force has resisted calls by TDs to abandon its current policy of allowing extremist groups to organise and to hold demonstrations at any location. Helen McAtee told the paper, we have to trust the judgment of the Gardaí on the ground on a particular day and they operate what they call a graduated response. That means that they will escalate their approach if required, but we have to be mindful that some people want to provoke a reaction and then use it uh, for their own ends. In supporting the policy, Helen McAtee acknowledged the levels of aggression and intimidation outside the door last week and said that they couldn't be allowed to go unchallenged, but that plans would be put in place to deal with future security issues if and when they arose. Uh, that is something we're going to be talking to the Count Corla about just after 12 o'clock and it's something we're going to talk about now as we go through the Sunday papers with Peter Leonard, barrister and presenter of the Law and Trial podcast and with Claire Rowan, the broadcaster uh, with Ocean FM. Uh, good morning to you both. Um, there's there's quite a few piece, uh, pieces of, uh, dotted around the papers about the events of Wednesday and some of the follow-up that there might be and the pitfalls of being seen maybe too, uh, reacting too heavy-handed away. Um, Peter, anything that jumped out at you from the extent of the coverage that there is this morning? No, I think I think the view is that what happened during the week was totally unacceptable. Um, people, you know, at the end of the day, people have a go at politicians all the time. And we all know, and you know better than any of us, Gavin, that outside the doll, on any given day, there's always people complaining and people protesting. And we believe in that. That's their democratic right and they have a constitutional right to do that. Mm. But what happened during the week was something slightly different. I mean, I think there was a sinister element to it that, that frightened people. And people felt intimidated. The presence of this gallows... Mm. Uh, agent prov- provocateur as they're kind of trying to incite hatred uh, and, and difficulty. And at the end of the day, Dáil Éireann is a workplace and nobody should be intimidated as they go into work and they should be mm. able to have freedom to go into work, etc., etc. So, So what do you do? 
So the well, issue, what do you do? Because well, there, there's, there's several solutions that have been floated and one, we'll, we'll talk through them with the Karen Corley when we have them after 12 o'clock. But one of the ideas is this kind of a sterile zone or some sort of a, no, a, a guaranteed I, cordon sanitaire. And I think in fairness house. to the, the, the politicians, they've been fairly robust about this. They don't want that. I mean, they want people to be able to come up and bring their placards. Maybe they don't want them to bring their placards, but they want them to be allowed to do that if mm. that's what they so desire to do. Um, I think we can overstate what happened as well. I mean, it was completely unacceptable and it was intimidating and it was scary for certain people involved. Mm. But the numbers of people involved, they're not huge. Um, You know, potentially, what, 200 activists turned up. This was an attempt to generate a lot of attention. You know, the start of the Doyle session, this was kind of a rallying call for people and only 200 people turned up. So Mm. let's not get this out of proportion. I thought the, 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 the line that was taken by the Minister for Justice in the Sunday Times, where she said she's liaising, liaising with the guard, the commissioner, but they're kind of standing back. They're observing from a distance. Yeah. If they need to intervene, they can. No doubt the guard, they have intelligence. No doubt. I know the special detective unit will keep an eye on this from a distance. But going in and clashing, arresting people, stopping people from protesting, that's only going to generate the publicity that these guys want. Uh, just for uh, the, So I think it's a sensible approach. Uh, just for the record, by the way, uh, I'm told that uh, the words hands off in that headline in the Sunday Times today and in the, the first paragraph I'm told they are not uh, McAtee's own words that's a characterisation of the Garda approach that's been put in it uh, by other people um, Claire, uh, good morning to you um, it is, it's, it's kind of difficult to know first of all other than the, the presence of a gallows it's different, difficult to know what was different about what happened at Enster House this Wednesday versus some of the other demonstrations that we've seen in, in the last couple of years but, but also whether in trying to take some measures to ensure the politicians are safe going to and from work, and indeed everyone else who works in Leinster House, that you might only end up emboldening some of what the people there on Wednesday are trying to achieve. Well, yeah, I mean, it's... it's it, The whole idea of what do you do now is the big, huge question, the big thing that's left. Like 1,200 people work in the Dáil. Obviously, there's a select amount of politicians, but all of those people were inconvenienced and some of them, from all accounts, were terrified. But what I think is a little bit more sinister about the whole thing is, you know, I think they really need to look at the protection of the politicians because what came out as a result is, for example, Mary Barry, Mary Barrett from Waterford spoke about the fact that she had had a death threat threat um, and that she Mary was Butler. very... Sorry, as a junior minister, Mary Butler. Mary Butler, yes, I beg yeah. your pardon. Um, and uh, as a junior minister, yes, she had had a death threat. She was very concerned for her own safety. Mm. There were protests brought outside Leo's house. I think Stephen Donnelly had something thrown over his wall. Uh, you know, I think after Wednesday, um, the families of the politicians and as families, I'm sure they have sat down. Now, I do know that there was some talk of Helen McEntee about some programme of security that was being brought in to pe- politi- uh, mm. uh, ba- uh, into politicians' homes and that. But there were only 200, but they were so angry, Gavin. Like... The vitriol and the anger, I mean, I watched some of it online and I couldn't work out what they were actually protesting about because Mm. it seemed to be a whole load of mixed... It was very disparate. It really was. But if you look at Europe and in a lot of countries in Europe, this far right, they're gaining popularity. You know, so how we handle them actually is probably um, the biggest elephant in the Mm. room. I do think October the 10th is another day that they're going to be very concerned about. That's budget day. Yeah, yeah, budget day. And Mm. I think that Helen McEntee will probably have a plan for that day, that this whole idea of hands off, it's hands off, but it's being watched very closely. And of course, they'll increase the amount of guards that will be coming in 
if there's a threat. Mm. Uh, one of the pieces in the papers today, uh, Peter, suggests that there might now be armed guardy stationed outside Leinster House because at present, on an everyday basis, that you, you never know what might suddenly show up at a moment's notice. But as it stands right now, there's only a couple of guards that are outside the Kildare Street entrance and now they're talking about the prospect of maybe having to introduce armed guardy. And this is something that we've heard a little bit about when we're talking about crime in, in the city yes. centre, particularly in the north side. And I'm not sure what that achieves because are you presuming that a weapon I mean, that someone's going to fire their used. weapon the yeah. point is is it going to be used and we know what the consequences of that are if if it's if it's used and not everything is appropriate i mean mm. like at the end of the day the doyle has to be protected that's the bottom line i mean people have to be able to you know democracy has to function yeah. the politicians have to go in and have to do their business and all the people that work there and claire has made that point really strongly you know that it's a workplace for so many people mm. so people have to be able but to go in about 4 fifths of those who work in Leinster house are not members yes. of the doyle and Charlotte. So but they, but the they were also earning, earning a dollar and going mm. about their business, you know. So that that is that is kind of very important. Armed guardy, we don't like it here in this country. I mean, obviously the the special detectives all have arms, and that's traditionally been the case. So there's plenty of guardy who are serving uh, in the state who who carry a weapon and need to carry a weapon for the purposes of their job mm. and you know dealing with crime, etc. Um, whether we really want to see you know what we see in continental Europe, go to France, go to Paris, mm. you go to Germany. Um, and you see, you know, heavily armed police, you know, patrolling entry points to kind of government buildings, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Do we really want that in Ireland? I don't think we do. And again, let's get back to the numbers. You know, any response always has to be proportionate, I think, Gavin. And I think in this instance, I mean, we've had this far right thing has gone on for a while. These anti-immigration protests mm. that took place over Dublin for a while. They seem to have died out a little bit. I don't hear about that. I think as they, much they've anymore. kind of metamorphosized this into this. Yeah, into that, this. That it, this. It's anti-immigration, it's anti-refugee housing, it's anti-vaccine, it's anti the funding of certain things. Yes. It, it's anti-reform of uh, primary school curricula to and for, to, to modernise the teaching about and sexuality. And all they could do was couple together after, let's say, a couple of years of allowing these various disparate protest groups come together all they could do is manage to get 200 people. Unacceptable, intimidating, all of that sort of stuff. Mm. But let's but, not throw the baby out with the bathwater. But there's water. not a massive scale in numbers, but isn't there though still a significant tick up in the scale of what is being threatened? I mean, we've never had a situation yes. where, where somebody was being harassed in as prominent a way as Donald O'Leary was, for example, trying to get into the building or Michael, yeah. Michael Healy Ray was getting out. There's been a couple of instances before where Well, that requires TDs intervention from the guards straight away. Mm. That, you know, but the point is people assemble outside the doll. Do the guards go in, anticipate that there's going to be a problem and intervene at that point? Or do they wait until, you know, the threat becomes operable and then they have to intervene? Yeah. So that's the issue. So I think I think the point is... Observation from a distance, because I think if it's heavy handed right at the start, that doesn't work and it only serves to give publicity to people who are looking for publicity. But obviously, if somebody is intimidated, like uh, Michael Healy Ray, for example, mm. um, you know, they must intervene at that point. You, you can't have that. That's a, that's a fringe of civil liberties. And we all want yeah. to have our civil liberties in this this country. Um, Claire, there, as I said, there's a lot written across the papers. I don't know if there was anything particular that, that jumped out at you that you want to single out. But one thing that I have heard a lot of politicians say in the last uh, four days or so, is that a lot of them would have taken part, and indeed still do from time to time, take part in protests outside mm. the gates of Leinster House before they were ever elected to serve inside them. And they all kind of recognise that that protest, maybe they didn't like the tone or the manner in which the one on Wednesday was carried out, but that protest is an inherent part of any vibrant functioning democracy. And a lot of them are actually particularly concerned that if you made it impractical to demonstrate outside Leinster House, then protesters will simply go somewhere else. They might go to a constituency office or they might go to your home and they would rather have Leinster House as 
something of a designated area where these sorts of gatherings happen rather than send them anywhere else. Yes, and um, it is such an important part of democracy. Um, But this on Wednesday was unusual. I mean, you know, and and when you say that a lot, absolutely a lot of politicians join in protests. I see them, especially down in the west of Ireland. But there's nobody throwing bottles of urine. I mean, if you that's what that's what was happening. So, you know, when you were speaking about the guards there, when you looked at the video of Michael Healy Ray, he had one guard on one side and one guard on the other. Mm. Now, somebody threw a bottle which missed his head. If that bottle had hit his head, we'd be in a completely different situation this morning if he was seriously injured. Um, so I think that a lot of the politicians would be looking, obviously, for peaceful protests. Mm. And there was some talk about a sterile area. And they're going to have to look at this and they're going to have to address it. But I, a lot of this was advertised online. Mm. Um, and afterwards, they were jubilant online. They thought it was the greatest success ever. So I'm sure the guards are checking this out in on the net. They know when these situations are... Like, there was barriers already put up. Mm. They knew something was going to happen. But I think if they're going to, they will have to allow protests to continue, but in a peaceful nature. Uh, a couple of messages that have already come in to 87 uh, Gavin, please, they weren't activists, they were thugs. Uh, and yes, it's a workplace, but so too are libraries. Uh, we've mm. been told that there's no far right in Ireland. When will we actually act? Uh, that's from Caroline. And Brian in Dublin says, we don't need to give additional powers to the Gardaí. We need proper enforcement of the laws that we already have against harassment. Um, Peter, I, I don't know whether that's your particular speciality, speciality in, in, in law, but is, is there a question mark around whether the Guardi in this kind of hands-off approach, are they actually failing to enforce laws that are already there? Do you, do you think that the laws against harassment, for example, should already be enough to make sure that people are able to walk the streets like that? I unbothered? would say they are probably enough. I'm, I'm not an expert in this, Gavin. I mean, there is enough there for the guards to intervene. I mean, the point is, at what point do the guards intervene? When does a peaceful protest become threatening? When does it become a danger to, to individuals? So, I mean, as Clara said, I mean, this there was something different about this. Mm. Maybe the guards were anticipating that this was going to get out of control, yeah. but they well, have they to they wait for something to happen. That they have to wait for to, something to happen before they can intervene. Yeah, they certainly anticipated that something was going to, to gather because not alone were the barriers up and actually the crowd was there from quite early morning considering the doll didn't reconvene until two o'clock, but that there was actually a note sent around by the Leinster House authorities on, on Tuesday evening to let everybody who works there know okay. that, that there wasn't going to be vehicular access at certain barriers because there were going to be barriers set up. So evidently there was advice that they were expecting something. Maybe yeah, the but they still have to wait to know. see what happened. You know, so I mean, that's 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 good planning, mm. you know, to anticipate that there potentially is a problem. But until the problem arises, it isn't a problem, mm. if you know what I mean. So, yeah. I mean, if they all gathered, if they held their, pro- their, their placards and said, we hate the politicians, mm. you know, all these outrageous allegations that they make, uh, nothing is going wrong at that stage. Under the laws of the land, if somebody's intimidated or somebody's in thre- threatened and never mind physically assaulted, then the guards have full powers to intervene and arrest and detain uh, people like that. And now we have new hate crimes coming in, which kind of comes into this territory as well. Yeah. So I think the laws of the land are sufficient. It's, you know, the guards have to make an election as to how they go about this. Uh, and I think the approach they took was, you know, we're watching, we're monitoring once it goes wrong, we immediately mm. must intervene. Of course yeah. they must at that point in time, but at the, 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 there is a tipping point yeah. and it's it's finding out what that tipping point is. I, I think that's probably what the Sunday Times headline is getting at, this idea of it being hands-off policing. I, I, I imagine that the Gardaí, I don't know whether they ever explain their approaches, but I imagine they're, what they would tell you is 
that they try to do as little as possible to inflame a situation, that the last thing they want to do is to antagonise. And that can be very difficult when you're standing around other antagonists, but that their approach is that they want to do as little as possible that already makes a hostile situation even more so. And well, that it's they need it's to like the classic Irish line, round up the usual suspects. You know what I mean? <laughs> Something's going to happen. What do we do? We, yeah. we have intelligence. We, we act. Now, I think you have to stand back until yeah. it has become problematic. Uh, a couple more messages. How about putting guards in public transport for the rest of us, uh, says one texter, voicing a concern that I know many people have expressed uh, for a while. Uh, and here's a long one. Thank you to Glenn for sending this in. I presume he's done it by WhatsApp because it, it's quite long. Uh, Glenn says, uh, what happened at the Dáil was a disgrace. We can all agree on that. Let the justice system do its work there if necessary on those responsible. It is telling, though, that politicians are immediately talking of extra security and policing at the Dole. Those are the same politicians that told us that Dublin is safe. Isn't there an irony there, folks? Meanwhile, us ordinary citizens are intimidated, frightened, robbed, attacked and even killed as law and order continues to break down on the streets and the city surrounding said government buildings and those that work there. Improving policing around the Dole should be as part of improving it for everybody. Politicians are further losing the room by reacting so strongly to this uh, while denying the issues that we all face. It's difficult to put a, a disagreement to that, Claire, mm. isn't it? That like people sort of feel like, yeah, Leinster House should be safe, but politicians are up in arms after one demonstration at Leinster House and look what's been going on in the city centre and elsewhere and the, the, the action hasn't been nearly as, as urgent. Yeah, well, you can't really argue with that. One thing I thought was interesting was one statement Drew Harris made in um, one of the articles we were reading this morning was he doesn't, he doesn't want to allow the guards to fall into the trap of overreacting. And what I read from that is that part of the whole process, part of what they want to achieve is to goad the guards, you know, Mm. to irritate them or, you know, poke at them until one of them loses his rag and that you're just playing actually into their hands. And they did stay very calm. Look, it's it's, you know, it's going to go on and on. Um, And hopefully that this hopefully now that this has happened, there will be a whole process in place. Mm. Uh, Margaret simply says uh, appeasement now where have we seen that not working before Uh, 11.25 and it's already a case of Godwin's Law but I suppose I I take the point you're coming from Uh, we're going to draw a line under that we will be talking to the Count Corla after 12 o'clock to discuss his idea of having designated protest free areas or protest areas around Leinster House and whether that is a proportionate outcome not quite feeling the festive vibes here in studio as they go through the Sunday papers on this somewhat wintry uh, Sunday lunchtime are Claire Ronan of Ocean FM and Barrister Peter Leonard Um, There is quite a lot uh, in the papers, understandably, including the front page lead in the Sunday Independent today about the controversy that's erupted in the last little while uh, over spinal surgeries in Temple Street. And particularly, um, Claire, the idea that the surgeon who might have had the best will in the world uh, was operating on children using devices that were never manufactured or cleared for that purpose. Yes, and they weren't of of the material that they should have been. Uh, they also didn't even carry the CE grant or CE label. Look, Gavin, uh, these parents, I've interviewed them over mm. the years who are waiting for surgery. They just go through hell because to watch your little child in pain and to have to wait and wait and wait to have them treated and then something like this comes out. They've obviously lost trust and trust is the most important word here that you have a child who has spinal difficulties. You need to trust the hospital and the doctors that are going to care for that child. And once they've lost that, I feel so 
unbelievably sorry for them. Mm. And one story that really struck me this morning is a little six-year-old boy. His name is John Kyo. He has cerebral palsy. And he, after a very long delay, his mother was given a date for um, surgery. And then she rang last week and told that it would be another two years. But what two struck years. two years? But what struck like me? The difference that makes for a boy who's six years old. Six, waiting and he's in senior being eight for the surgery. Like yeah, he'd be of communion age by the time he's ready for it. Like that's. And he's in dreadful. pain. Like the, 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 the one line that sort of flew out of the article was, he wakes up every morning in pain. These children have to overcome so much every single solitary day. And I know that the piece of equipment was incorrect and I know that there was 81% of people called back for surgeries and all the things. But I just keep thinking of the people who are sitting at home listening to this programme this morning and they're living this story. Mm. You know, you know, of course there were mistakes made, but this family is being torn apart by this. Mothers mm. and fathers who get no sleep. Yeah. Uh, the one thing that really struck me by the reporting, particularly within the Sunday Independent, Peter, was that um, so this was seemingly discussed at meetings that were attended by other consultants, as well as Connor Green, the person who actually carried out these surgeries, um, other consultants and the chief executive of Children's Health Ireland, which is the umbrella body that operates all of the children's hospitals in the state. Um, and that the issue of regulatory approval or where you would get these springs that he was proposing to use as part of his novel surgical technique just never seemed to come up. Was it just a case of everyone being a little bit asleep at the tiller and not realising that actually there might have been an issue with where do you get these devices if you're trying to travel out or try out a, no a novel surgical routine? Um, it, it's very hard to know. I mean, obviously there's going to be a full investigation into this. I mean, the story, and I think Claire has set it out, you know, very evocatively. I mean, it's, it's just absolutely dreadful for parents of young children who need this really important surgery and then they have to read these stories and, you know, now the, the issue is it has to be investigated. Was this surgeon, you know, negligent in what he did? Was he entirely cavalier? Was he trying to be a pioneer and bringing in a brand new technique? Mm. Was there some international research in relation to this that the notion of a spring, and I thought you said it when you, when you did your review yeah, of, gonna, the, of the papers at the time. Now, yeah. yeah, that, you know, that rather than having a rigid bar, I mean, obviously I don't know anything about surgery, but mm. maybe the spring would allow flexibility down the line. And therefore, you know, in, in good faith, there was an attempt to do something that might have been beneficial to patients and maybe Maybe peers, peer group reviewers said, you know what, this is a new departure. And in surgery, there always has to be pioneers and there has to be the first one to, to go somewhere. Now, this man, I, I see he's referred to in the papers. Uh, he seems to be 44 years of age. So he, he would sound like he was a relatively junior surgeon, I think, when he was doing this. So maybe I don't know, but it's it's. It's, the bottom line is that, I mean, we have a report that one child had to come back 33 times as a result of infections that mm. occurred as a result of what happened. I mean, that is huge. Um, and there seems to have been a series of problems. You know, if they tried some innovative approach and it was a pioneering approach, but very quickly, if it's shown to have gone wrong, stop, stop immediately and, you know, do whatever. There will be an investigation in relation to this. Uh, I know the individual in question has, has, has not been allowed to perform surgery since May, according yeah. to the newspapers today. Um, so, so it's it. But look again. I mean, I think the, the only way of looking at this is with the the patients, with the children who need this surgery, and their parents and their families, who are obviously you know 
looking for this surgery and then looking at it and feeling, can we trust this? Can we put our child through this? Mm. Uh, if there's potential for infection and very serious consequences, according to the articles. Yeah, uh, the, the piece on page eight uh, that, that you mentioned that I tried to give a little bit of a summary of uh, is by Maeve Sheen. It's on page eight of the Sunday Independent. And it actually it does a pretty good job of trying to contextualise what exactly went on here. Um, so it, may, it makes no secret that in Temple Street Children's Hospital, the paediatric orthopaedic consultants they were working on a new level of a new technique for children in need of spinal and surgery. Uh, this had been originally pioneered by a team of Dutch clinicians at the University Medical Centre in Utrecht. Uh, they had worked with children with early onset scoliosis, uh, which, as we are all sadly familiar with, uh, is a life threatening spinal curvature, which is capable of crushing the, the, the upper chest of people without there being any surgical intervention. Um, the treatment usually involves metal implants known as growing rods to straighten the spine as it grows, often followed by further surgeries to lengthen the rods and all of the associated complications that go with that. One of the many uh, challenges in this complex surgery is how to correct the curve while still allowing the child's spine to grow. The Dutch team's innovation was to introduce a spring to the curve straightening process, which is a compressed uh, helical or helical spring positioned around a traditional growing rod, which then applies a continuous distraction force, it's called here. The system is said to allow for fewer surgical interventions and associated collateral damage, resulting in a better outcome and quality of life for children. Now, what is pointed out is that this uh, still hasn't been uh, fully uh, ever licensed. It has been acknowledged by the US FDA as a breakthrough device. Uh, one thing, though, which is quite telling, if you go for a few further paragraphs down, is that the team in Utrecht manufactured their own spring. Uh, they outlined that in an academic paper in October 2020. They described the spring made of titanium, titanium being the substance that usually a lot of these sort of implants are made out of, and designed by the hospital's medical technology and physics department in compliance with European regulations. Green, having done his own research, did not manufacture his own spring. He's alleged to have placed an order with an EU-wide metals company uh, from the company's online catalogue. Indeed, actually, that aspect was first reported by the ditch uh, when it broke this story a couple of weeks ago. So it's quite a good piece, Claire, because it does at least explain mm. in context what was going on. It doesn't, doesn't appear to have been anyone acting with malfides, or at least it doesn't appear that way. This is someone who was looking at innovative practice elsewhere and wanted to spare, you have to presume, these children from going under the knife multiple times it was just the way in which all the I's were dotted and the T's were crossed, really. But, I mean, you would wonder, Gavin, where was the governance? I mean, would he, does, he not have to, does he not have to report into somebody to say, I'm using this new technology? Um, now, they do say in one of the articles that he had spoken to some of the other doctors about this new, um, new way of operating. But mm. it worried me when you just read out there about, you, you know, the doctors in Utrecht, it hasn't been completely cleared. So he seems to have gone off his own bat to use this. And was that approved by the hospital? Was the spring, which wasn't the correct spring, approved by the hospital? There's a lot of questions to be answered here. But in the meantime, what's really worrying for the parents is, are all the further surgeries going to be delayed by these children who had their dates for their operations? And I did hear an interview during the week where one of the parents said, you know, they may have to go abroad. And sure, to bring a child who has those severe physical, Mm. um, you know, to bring them abroad, yeah. it's a huge task. If, if they're in pain all the time, if they're in pain just being in their Can houses, how do you think about putting them on a plane or a ferry and all the, the travel that involves? And the whole family going. I mean, obviously, you know, in a lot of these cases, they have other children. So, yes, investigate this within an inch of its life, but please make sure that the children who have had their appointments that have sur- that have surgery lined up that the parents have been waiting for, that goes ahead. And you know something? Yeah. 
I don't think it's going to happen because they've now lost. This man is not working at the moment. Yeah, uh, that's a very interesting point that's also raised by page five of the Mail on Sunday today, Peter, because the parents of some of the children that were operated on by the surgeon are now warning against making him a scapegoat mm. uh, because they're saying, well, this is the result of, sorry, not that this is, but that there has been years of inadequate health care provided to children with spina bifida and they're worried now that this is going to result in further cuts or further delays somehow. Well, that that's generally what happens. I mean, if there's a problem, then there's a shutdown. And, you know, I mean, is there a replacement surgeon? Are there other people? I mean, it's obviously very highly, highly, you know, specific surgery that's required here. This person has to be a specific, you know, expert in this area. Mm. So, I mean, are those, is that level of ability there available in the, in the health service at the moment? Who knows? But, I mean, there has to be an investigation. You would hope that immediately there will be replacement surgery and that people who are on waiting lists you know, they will get the surgery when they need it as soon as possible. Yep, fingers crossed. I mean, that's crossed. the hope. Uh, Dan has texted in to say that he can't understand that if a new procedure was being tried, why couldn't the springs have been procured or manufactured to order? <clears throat> and indeed, <clears throat> excuse me, if the Sunday Independent points out that the team in Utrecht were able to get their own manufactured, I'm sure they would have been open to producing more if they thought they could be put to good use uh, somewhere else. Uh, a Noble Guardian, who is uh, someone who regularly uh, messages in on Twitter slash X uh, and who... Uh, certainly uh, at least has in the past, if not currently works in the health services, uh, does make a very salient point, uh, which is that it's important to state that there's nothing wrong with innovation in medicine. In fact, it's essential. The use of novel devices in surgery drives better patient outcomes. The problem here was the alleged lack of consent and the use of substandard objects. And I think the substandard objects, unfortunately, is is exactly what the crux of all of this is. Um, It's 11.41. We've got a few other bits and pieces that I want to get through, but we also do have uh, John Burns, who's going to be with us in a moment, to talk about some of the newspaper coverage around Rupert Murdoch. So I'm going to take a break and we're going to come back and talk to John and continue our review of the papers when we're back after this. Uh, Peter Leonard alongside Claire Ronan going through the stories that are making the Sunday newspapers. Uh, There is understandably quite a lot of coverage inside the papers about the retirement, although you may not be able to call it the retirement, simply the move to being chairman emeritus uh, from his various media outlets of uh, Rupert Murdoch uh, in his 90s, still uh, threatening to rule on uh, someone who has made an enormous impact, of course, uh, across the media, across the world, uh, across many decades. John Burns is a freelance journalist and media commentator, formerly of the Sunday Times, which is in itself a, a Murdoch title. John, um, I suppose, it, it, I don't know whether your own view of Rupert Murdoch's legacy is in any way informed or coloured by the time that you spent at the Sunday Times, but it is difficult to understate the sheer impact that he's had on the way that we all consume our information. No, that's absolutely true, Gavin. Um, from very, from a very modest start back in Australia in 1952, when he inherited a single newspaper from his father at the age of 21, he has gone on to dominate uh, the media, not only in his native Australia, but then in Britain, um, the States, and uh, several several other countries, and obviously has a big uh, stakeholding in Ireland as well. Um, of course, he is somebody who hugely divides opinion, and as somebody who uh, worked in his empire for 30 years or so, I should at least give the um, positive side, because he has created... Um, very good em- employment for thousands of journalists over the uh, 70 or so years that, that he's been at the top of the, of the media game. And it's often forgotten that when he took over the Sun newspaper in 1969, it was an absolute basket case. It was a uh, broadsheet, losing money, tiny circulation. Same, same thing happened in 1981 when he bought the Times from Laura Thompson. It was very close to closure. It had been off the streets for about a year due to strikes. And if you look at the Sun and the Times now, they are both um, extremely profitable newspapers with 
very high circulation. So mm. um, that point should, should be made in his favour. Indeed, and, and he still does employ uh, quite a number of people in Ireland across, uh, not alone the, the Times titles, but also across his uh, the, the wireless radio group as well, which is still within the ownership of, of News UK. Uh, is there a, a, diff- a distinction to be drawn between his proprietorship of um, newspapers and his proprietorship of broadcast media, particularly Fox in the US, when it comes to the positivity or the legacy that he's had on public life? Definitely there is. I mean, the uh, Fox um, Fox News and its role in the 2020 presidential election has somewhat tarnished his empire and his legacy. That's, that's absolutely true. Um, and now uh, he is handing over to his old son, Lachlan. And uh, Lachlan, of course, is the chairman of uh, Fox as it stands. And the feeling about um, Lachlan is that he's probably not very interested in newspapers. And um, there is also a feeling that he might, as time goes on, that he might actually discard some of the um, newspaper titles from his empire and really concentrate in on uh, TV and and Fox. But that uh, remains to be seen. I mean, some of those newspapers still wield huge influence, um, despite the overall uh, decline in in print media. Mm. Uh, Still part of the Murdoch Empire is the Wall Street Journal, um, obviously the Times. Times in the UK, and he owns a couple of very significant and powerful newspapers still in Australia. So even though they may not make money for Lachlan in the future, they still come with an awful lot of influence and power, and he, he might be slow mm. to Well, sp- speaking of influence and power, how much influence is Rupert himself still likely to wield? Because as, as I pointed out, uh, Lachlan is taking over as chairman of those groups, but Richard was st- or Rupert will still be around as some kind of chairman emeritus, which seems like a very uh, hazily defined role, which might also be tailored to a man who simply wants to make sure that he still has his oar in. Well, well that's true. And I mean, in fact, re- really, probably nothing much has changed this week except the legal title. So he, he was the chairman of Fox and of Loose Court and he's now gone to this vague title, as you say, of Chairman Emeritus. But it is quite likely he will continue to be a backseat driver. And um, there was a, a News Corps insider quoted in the Financial Times during the week saying, as long as Rupert is breathing, he's still in charge. And in his uh, goodbye message, there was a rather ominous warning <laughs> from his staff that when he, he called into offices, he would be doing so late on Friday afternoon. And... The kind of message being there that there's a general feeling that people are, are, are not doing much work on Friday anymore, but um, Rupert certainly will be. Um, it was a, it's, it's a strange title, though, in a sense. Um, back in 1982, I think it was, when he got rid of Harold Evans as the editor of the time, he gave him the title editor, the Meritus, and um, somebody is said to have asked Rupert at the time, what does that mean? And um, Rupert said, he means he's out. Meritus means he deserves to be. So <laughs> it, was, uh, it was rather strange that he should take that title yeah. from uh, I'm sure what was good for the goose is not in this instance uh, good for the gander. Uh, John Burns, appreciate your analysis. Thank you for joining us this morning on The Record. That's John Burns, freelance journalist and uh, media writer, uh, long time previously of the Sunday Times in Ireland. Uh, Peter, you had your hands up. Do you want to make a comment? Well, well, I mean, I think it's, I mean, Rupert Murdoch is a fascinating character. Um, and I agree with John. I mean, he was a great newspaper man. I worked in newspapers myself once upon a time. And I mean, he, as he said, 21 years of age, I think he was pulled out of Oxford. His father died, mm. went to Adelaide, took over that newspaper, then moved to Britain, took over the Sun, News of the World. I think News of the World first and then and then, you know, went from there. 
But it is the political influence, I think, that he'll always be remembered for. And this this attempt to try and control the political narrative. Initially in Britain, uh, people might remember that famous front page in The Sun when Neil Kinnock almost got elected yes. in 1992. Yeah, the Yeah, and then it was, the, it was The Sun, what won it, mm. you know? And then poor old Tony Blair, when he came in, one of his, you know, as well as devising new, new policies that might make new Labour attractive, had to win Rupert Murdoch over, which he did. Mm. And that seemed to be instructive. He's, and then he's it, purported then it to be godfather back. to one of Murdoch's children, I think. S- such was the, the ties okay. that they forged that I did in not those know. late 90s times. So, so it was that sort of influence, you know. And I mean, you can say there was a coarsening of the, the cultural narrative as a result of some of the content mm. of tabloid newspapers. Then he went to America and did it all again. And of course, Fox News will be his legacy yeah. and what they have done. And like 92 years of age, he still seems to be game ball. He still seems to be focused. He almost got married again. I think he got he engaged did. on St. Patrick's yeah. Day, saying that he was one quarter Irish and that was the reason he got engaged on St. Patrick's Day. Uh, what an old and, romantic but then, he I think is. that ran into 92. the sand. Yeah. That relationship ran into the sand. But it just shows you that he's full of energy. Uh, so standing back, I'd say he'll still be keeping an eye on things yeah, from a distance. I can't imagine he'd be taking it too handy. Uh, there's a couple of other uh, lighter bits and pieces <laughs> across the papers, including on page 10 of the Sunday Independent, Claire. Uh, news that the National Gallery of Ireland is calling a truce in the war against selfies. I was not aware that they had a war on selfies to begin with. What's going on? Well, I think maybe it is uh, the point that people are standing in front of the art and taking selfies of themselves and uh, they've just decided that you can go ahead and do that. What was the the problem with doing it before now where where you're supposedly getting in the way? I think so, That you're standing in front of a Caravaggio and you're ruining (laughs) everyone else's enjoyment by taking a picture. But it's actually quite normal if you're on your holidays to take a a selfie in front of a painting. I I could pull out a picture right now of of myself and 400 other people standing in front of the Mona Lisa in the Louvre. I didn't think it was, it wasn't the selfies that were disrupting people. It was the volume of others that were around. <laughs> well, look, I think they do incredible work in the National Gallery, but it, look, it's just, it's very important that everyone knows that if you want to take a selfie of yourself in front of a painting, you can now do that. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I think it is it a, a tad snobbish in the first place for there to have been apparent war on selfies, Peter? Probably, probably. But I mean, I suppose uh, galleries can be kind of po-faced and take themselves very seriously. Uh, I mean, I think there is I mean, there is nothing worse than people taking selfies all the time and standing and then trying to get the right angle. Is there? What's the issue? Are they trying to get the right angle on the picture? Are are they trying to get the right smile on their face or the right angle on their own visage? They they didn't think Mona Lisa Uh, was posing appropriately and and they have to go again. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's it. And if they have to kind of, then you're sort of waiting for them to move out of the way so you can observe this beautiful painting. Ah, look, I mean, it's uh, all these things, uh, you know, of course, people should be entitled to take photographs. I think that would be wrong not to. And it seems like the... The, the gallery have finally yeah, woken I, up to I, I just that think it's a bit joyless to, to have uh, had a kind of a banner if they think that they were doing it as some kind of crowd control measure. It just yeah. seems a bit joyless. That if, you, if you want to publicise that you're there beside a piece of art, you'd have thought that they would have embraced the idea of yes, doing so. Yes, maybe, maybe. But, but they do you probably always have, have to have a selfie? I mean, can you not just go in and look at the painting and let it sink into your mind and now walk away? Do you really need to kind of have a picture of you're yourself? You're sounding and, really old-fashioned. Well, uh, sorry, I probably am. Um, <laughs> well, uh, I don't disagree with you, but... Uh, <laughs> if, if you are feeling old-fashioned, Neve Horan does tell us that the National Gallery in London and the Museum of Metropolitan Art uh, in New York have both banned selfie sticks. And uh, the, the stick, now to be fair, yeah, banning yeah. the stick, that's something you that's can get on board. That's the camera on the long yes. thing. Yeah. yeah. Okay. You can totally understand that. Uh, selfies in front of paintings have also been criticised by enthusiasts. But speaking to the Sunday Independent, Dr. Caroline Campbell, who's the director of the gallery, says, we use our phones all the time to capture the things that are important to us and it's wonderful that people love works of art enough to want to take pictures of them. Like, ain't that the whole point of it? 
Ain't that the whole point? Absolutely. Uh, Appreciate both of your time coming in this morning. Uh, Really enjoyed your company. Claire Ronan is a broadcaster with Ocean FM and Peter Leonard is a barrister and a presenter of the highly acclaimed Law on Trial podcast. Appreciate you both coming on and thank you again uh, to John Burns joining us a couple of minutes ago. On the Record with Gavin Riley. Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PwC. Redesign your organisation. Reinvent your capabilities. Reimagine your future. On News Talk.